I think when someone like Patrick Schumacher talks about the real world, they're talking about the current highly privatized, like late capitalism economic reality that we live in. I think that's what he thinks as the real world. But if we think about that as the real world, well, how long has that real world existed? Hello and welcome to What Do Buildings Do All Day, an architecture podcast about lives lived in the company of buildings. In this episode, I catch up with Charlie Edmonds, one half of FAF, or the Future Architects Front. FAF was created and is run by Charlie and Priti Mohandas, British designers and researchers. Future Architects Front is a grassroots organisation of architectural workers and students. The pair say they are campaigning, and I quote, to end the exploitative practices that have come to define the world of architecture. With a growing online following, they came to widespread attention in March of 2021, following their submission of an open letter to the Royal Institute of British Architects in February, outlining some concerns and issues about the terms and conditions of employment for architectural assistance. The work of FAF thus far is discussed in the podcast, as is the wider context in which concerns about workers in architecture are being voiced, addressed and used to make change, for example in the formation of architecture-specific unions since 2019. We also talk about being young and being experienced. Charlie also calls for education to offer more diverse ways in which to engage with architecture. And we discuss the rhetoric of the real world as a term often used to criticize education in architecture. To begin though, I asked Charlie to tell us how he and Pretty got started with the Future Architects Front. It was a sort of combination of a few different things. My co-founder and I, uh, Priti Mohandas, we both studied our masters in Cambridge together, and um, she went straight on to do a PhD. And very much in character for me, I just sort of uh, graduated and thought I'd see what was out there. I was looking around at the various sort of opportunities that were available. It it sort of struck me that for I think the thing that the that triggered it was the fact that I was looking at all of these positions for part two architectural assistance, which, you know, in many ways are sort of like entry level kind of roles for the mm. profession. So many of them were being advertised with sort of like, you know, must have three years experience, must have four years experience, that kind of thing. It it started me thinking about the sort of nature of architectural education and um, the fact that we have these roles that are ostensibly roles where you gain experience and you continue your education, yet they're being treated just as any other sort of worker role would be treated. So that that was sort of the thing that started us looking at the actual um, sort of like the, the the structure of the profession a little bit more. And that led to us conducting a survey to sort of see if our feelings were shared. And then the data from that survey ended up going into an open letter that we wrote to to the Reba. And then that ended up getting over 1800 signatures. Yeah, so we had written the letter and the experiences that had been shared with us as part of the letter were in, in many cases, very personal, very traumatic stories of abuse in some cases in like while working as a uh, architectural assistant or junior practitioner so that was the point where I 
sort of realized that this isn't something that I can just run as an individual anymore. Like I don't, I don't want to run this in a way where my face is on it. So the, the whole reason for creating FAF originally was just to have a sort of um, non-personal identity attached to the initiative because some of the things that were being sent to us just felt, um, yeah, far too sensitive to just be, you know, tied to any individual person. So that, yeah, that was kind of how it started. And then through getting over 1800 signatures for the open letter and sort of subsequent talks and uh, campaigns and meeting with the Reba themselves, for example, we became more well known. And yeah, now we're sort of where we are now, um, which is an interesting point, because originally, FAF as a group, you know, they it, it existed to be a vehicle for the open letter that we wrote. It didn't, it wasn't made with the intent of anything greater than that. So now we yeah, are we're, we're in this sort of interesting situation where we've almost had a kind of role <laughs> like given unto us yeah. by the the sort of response that we we've had already. My first question is what is what's an architectural assistant? Because it's a very specific term and it's also defined, isn't it, within the RIBA definition. They have a a meaning for that. The sort of typical model of qualification for an architect is to do your undergraduate degree for three years then work in practice for one year as a part one architectural assistant, then do a two-year master's, and then work for a second year as a part two architectural assistant. And then you can do your part three, which is the final stage of your qualification, where you will do a case study on some projects that you've worked on, and you'll have an interview. And that's that's the final stage of um, learning slightly more business and regulatory aspects of the profession um, before you're given the title of architect officially. So a part one and a part two architectural assistant, it's a job, uh, but at the same time, it's also supposed to be a continuing part of your education prior to qualification. So therefore, in your responses to your survey and in the signatories to your letter, that was drawn from both part one and part two assistants. Is that right? Yeah, part ones, part twos, um, even some younger architects, some people who, you know, have since moved on in their careers, but still had relevant stories that they wanted to share from their time as architectural assistants. So it, it was it was a bit of a, a, a mixed bag, but predominantly architectural assistants and students. And of course, that strikes me. There's two, there's two things there. One is that you're part of your path to becoming an architect and being able to use that title and so on in your practice. You have to go through this process. It's, it's mandated. So you don't have a choice. So therefore, you're in this position of continuous learning. But at the same time, as you've already said, you're in a practice. The practice is doing significant projects very often. They're working, they're getting paid. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a business. It's not a it's yeah. not an education setting. So I right. guess there's a, already a gap there or a moment there where stuff can start to become vague, ambiguous. And is that one of the places where, as you use your own word, exploitation starts to happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you can essentially look at it as having two years of your education at minimum outsourced to uh, the the private sector, if you know, if you want. And And so, you know, the kind of inherent danger of that is that there there is not much of a um you know beyond sort of ethical uh motivations there's not 
much of a source of motivation for practices to put a huge amount of um, resources into the education of staff who will often only be there for one, two years before going back to doing their masters or moving on to something else. Structurally, it you know it leaves a lot of gray areas in in terms of that you know the practice's role as an educator as well as an employer. And I, I think in any relationship, whenever there are gray areas in the the sort of you know the the contract or the the details of the relationship, any gray areas they benefit the person in the relationship with more power. So in this case, you know, it's the, the practice. And the employer has the opportunity to sort of take advantage of the vagaries of that arrangement and in some cases sort of shirk their role as an educator in this situation. So there's there's that from a sort of pathway to qualification point of view. But then there's also, you know, just a, a problem that is common across all creative industries, which is that um, uh, there, there are also far more common issues with things like unpaid overtime. Recently, we saw furlough fraud being recurrent issue in architecture. So you also have these problems that are, are also tied to any sort of industry trying to kind of cut costs wherever they can. And you, you, you see that a lot in architecture. And sort of the excuse that is often given for that is like the architects charge low fees, so they have to sort of you know, reduce costs where they can be that unpaid overtime, be that low wages, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's kind of a sort of intersection of, of problems for the graduates of architecture, because you have the problem with your academic progression, you have problems of, um, you know, financial viability of the profession and the sort of the various kinds of like gatekeeping that that can create. So it's, it's, it's sort of a, an issue that manifests in a couple of different um, ways for for uh, graduates at the moment. And when you carried out your survey, I mean, you would have had your own experience, experience of colleagues, friends, anecdotal stories, even through college of how people mm -hmm. are employed and what happens and you've been through your part one assistantship yourself. But what kind of things were emerging that really surprised you and that that would have, you know, prompted you to act and take on what is quite a significantly let's say within the world of architecture, anyway, a powerful organization like the RABA and to, to kind of deal directly with them in the first instance. I mean, that was your first move was to approach the professional body, right? In terms of the stories we were hearing, I, I think a lot of them, the, the, the thing that stood out the most was how technically legitimate a lot of the sort of abusive employment practices we were seeing were. So like for... for an architectural worker often you are sort of pushed to sign away your um working time directive so there's so you you can work ridiculously long weeks and only get paid for uh say 40 hours of that as far as like business is concerned as far as the riba is concerned currently that's totally legitimate that plays by the rules so i think the the thing that yeah really struck me was 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 how uh, a lot of the problems are there due to sort of complicity or a lack of awareness about the the repercussions of these systems looking at the RIBA in particular it wasn't so much that we thought that the RIBA had the power to like snap their fingers and 
fix everything. It was more of a sort of um, strategic decision where we were sort of looking at the the institutions that govern the profession. So, you, you know, you have REBA, you have the ARB, you have um, universities, you have practice. And REBA was the one that we sort of thought that we had the best chance of being able to leverage because we as a group of early career practitioners, graduate students, whatever, you know, we don't have the power to do that, but we do have the collective power to leverage institutions with power. For us to look at the REBA, it was partly we do genuinely believe that they should be doing more, but there was also a strategic element to it where we thought that they would respond to the type of campaign that we ran and they would be likely to sort of give way to some of the issues that we were raising. Also, unlike universities, unlike addressing individual practices, the REBA, because of the Chartered Practice Agreement, they have avenue through which they can create policy and directly influence the behavior of a very large percentage of the profession. So say one of the things that we spoke with REBA about in our meetings was the need to um, ban unpaid overtime. And that's one of the things that they've agreed to consult on and potentially introduce in September of this year. While it won't eliminate the problem of unpaid overtime, for, for a group like us, which has no institutional power, no sort of pre-existing legitimacy, it's a way to make a really big step in what we see to be as the right direction in sort of like the most feasible and um, effective way. Because we met with Reba and we got them to agree to consult on introducing a ban on unpaid overtime in March. So that was something like six weeks after we had officially become an entity as a group. It, looking at Reba was it, it was it was something that we thought they should be doing, but it was also kind of practical in the sense that we thought they could have the largest and sort of most immediate potential for creating change. And do you think that's something they thought they should be doing? Because if you you know if you set up your group in February and you approach them in February and then by March they're agreeing to your you know you've got five commitments out of them about change in practice, that seems really fast. Yeah, I mean it, it is it is fast, and I think that um, the sense I got was that one of the biggest problems with the way that Reba interacts with their member practices is I, I think that they engage in very um, almost a sort of naive level of good faith where one of the people we spoke to drew my attention to a part of the, um, the, the, the part of the charter practice agreement that says that all employees should be paid at least the real living wage. He, effect, he basically said to me, um, well, if you look at this, this shows that we're asking our practices to be good sort of ethical employers to, to pay people for their time. So the implication is that unpaid overtime should not be um, something that our charter practices rely on too heavily. And so it was this sort of assumption, like, you know, the practice would like read between the lines and figure out that as a reaper practice, they shouldn't be using overtime or something. But it's, yeah, so, so and, and I think there's, there's an issue of, of like a lot of the charter practice agreement where there's something that is in there, 
that the Reba just assumes that practices are going to just sort of go along with happily in good faith. But in reality, you know, they're businesses and they're going to sort of do whatever is the most financially beneficial to the business. And so it's not it's not quite as as uh, as idealized as um, I, I think they want it to be. Even things that are explicitly in the charter practice agreement, like the paying of the real living wage. The Architects Journal recently ran an investigation that was prompted by our work, and they found that I think it was something like around half of part one assistants working for REBA practices aren't being paid the real living wage. Even the things that are explicitly laid out in the Charter Practice Agreement are often being ignored by by practices that have agreed to um, work by this standard. I, I think that's sort of um, part, part of the the issue is that I think that the REBA can see the need and the benefit for these sort of policies, but at the moment, they're not operating in a way that effectively ensures that practices are working according to the ideals that are held by the, the people of the institution. I mean, perhaps it still needs to be worked out. I don't know in terms of how the Hariba will monitor that commitment or ensure that it gets implemented. Let's just take the unpaid overtime question, though there are others. I mean, is that is that worked out yet? And I mean, in practice, how how would something like that work? There isn't a regulator. There isn't, you know, there isn't someone who can go into an office yet, as far as I understand, and inspect conditions. So does it put the, the onus of compliance back on the worker? The REPA currently um, operate under the assumption that if a practice is in breach of any of their the terms of their agreement, they, they have an email that you can send a complaint to, and that will begin the process of uh, accountability. To be honest, for an institution of you know their size and resources, it's a it, it's it's a very weak informal attempt at creating accountability for their members. So that that was one of the things that we were able to get them to agree to was to improve the the complaints procedure, for example. I think ideally, you know, if 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 they do um improve that, there'll be a more transparent system of complaints in place. Because currently there's nothing that informs you how that procedure works. There's also no there's no detail about any safeguarding names for people who, you know, like whistleblowers, for example. So, you know, you you can't just sort of sit on your hands and say, oh, well, there's an email. So, you know, if your practice is breaking the rules, you can just email us because uh, so many employees are terrified of reprisal for anything to do with um, speaking yeah. out on any of these issues. So to, to just have an email address is, is just, is, it's not enough. You need to do more as an institution to um, make the process transparent, give people confidence that you as an institution will do as much as you can to, to protect them if they do highlight when a practice is in breach of the agreement that you've made with them. And, you know, I, I mean, that's still not going to be perfect. There are still going to be people who will not use that system because they're, they're worried of potential repercussions. But I, I, I think it would certainly be a step in the right direction. And I think if practices were aware that that system was in place, then perhaps even before complaints being made, they would maybe think twice before trying to sort of circumvent the agreements that they've made. 
In terms of the other party, which is the worker, um, you've used that word and I've used that word, which I think is beginning to be more used in architecture, I think, than the other words you would have used to describe what an architect is. What is your position or your experience of the appetite for union? Yeah, it's a really, really big, big undertaking. So, you know, UVW saw, uh, which as far as I know, is the only architectural union in the UK, began in 2019. So they are not much older as an organization than even we are. Yeah, they've already made a very big cultural impact in terms of beginning conversations about unionization, about viewing ourselves as architectural workers rather than, um, you know, professionals or practitioners or whatever whatever other um yeah whatever other titles we we may like to give ourselves so you know i i'm I'm optimistic that things are moving in the right direction but at the same time there there's there's a huge huge professional culture to kind of grapple with in that pursuit of of unionization or like people identifying as workers in architecture because you know, I really can't think of another profession or kind of work that self-mythologizes quite as much as we do. And I think the result of that sort of self-mythologizing way of like recording our history and our like, you know, prominent figures in architecture is that a lot of people treat our jobs at the end of the day as well. They are their jobs. A lot of people treat architecture as more of a, a calling or a sort of an ideology than, than work. And, you know, that starts in university. That, that, that's something that is reinforced by the, the culture of, of, of practice and education, the, 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 the way that we tell stories about how architecture developed, the dominance of sort of like Western canon in architectural history. Yeah, so so you you know you 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 have a group of people who train to view themselves as the kind of um, like visionaries, like you know lone lone thinkers who, who who get things done by by themselves and by sort of setting themselves out for the, from the crowd. And even in even in sort of management practice uh, and law, a lot of the time in university, you're taught about these topics from the perspective of practice owners. Um, I was speaking to some students from UCL the other day who, for their part of that of their curriculum, they were taught to like design their own practice, like manage the books, do like do, do all of these things that is entirely from the perspective of the practice owner. And yet, you're mm-hmm. never taught about employment rights. You're never taught about what the working time directive or um, real living wage, foundation, salary, that kind of thing. So, so many different aspects of our education and practice is, is, is geared towards this rejection of the idea that we're workers. You know, even the way we talk about our businesses, which that's what, like, again, they're businesses, they're companies, but, you, mm. you know, you'll never hear an architect refer to the their studio or their atelier as a business it's always um it's always it's always uh you know a practice it's a it's a it's a studio or whatever so um it's it's really really deeply deeply baked into um everything the the entire culture of architecture to not view ourselves as workers and i think that's that's the 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 hill that um people like us people like unions are going to have to sort of gruelingly pull our way up before you know we we can sort of cross that 
tipping point into you know majority unionization of the of the profession or anything like that but but that being said you know even the modest steps that we've made today i think compared to a, a decade ago it's something to be optimistic about because I, I i do still think that things are moving in the right direction even if there is a uh, a, a very large existing st- status quo that has to be overcome to yeah. uh, to get there one of the things i noted in the response to you and faf um from reba was this uh, commitment to support the next generation of architects and i'm always curious about that because i teach too and i'm always conscious of this hierarchy that's built in you touched on a little bit there and the hierarchy built of experience and age and the assumption that we're talking here today and somehow the assumption might be that i know more about this world than you do simply to do with the fact that i'm older and Mm. that i have more experience and that i'm in architecture longer or that i'm somehow in a position as you started at the thing of power Mm. So I'm just curious as to what the reaction, and I think there might be a there might be a power in 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 that kind of conversation. But also, I'm just curious as to how you have you've been treated in that regard. And do you think that's something that's um, just it's just something you can do nothing about, or is something that is kind of tacitly used to support you or to hold you back in this pursuit of yeah of what's correct for workers in architecture? Yeah, uh, it's a tricky one because you know I, as 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 much as I'd like to stroke my own ego, like I don't think you can throw the entire concept of experience under the bus. Like, like it's it is obviously a important marker to consider in terms of someone's aptitude for certain things. I think when it becomes less important is perhaps when you're talking about visions for the future or um, critical thinking. I think that, you know, these are sort of areas where perhaps age is less important or in some cases, perhaps even detrimental, say to like critical thinking, for example. So I think it's I think it's not so much about rejecting the, the, the concept and value of experience. I think it's perhaps maybe more about trying to pursue a more nuanced understanding of it. So, I mean, like one thing that I was kind of thinking about in terms of, um, you know, the Reba and their relationship to experience and um, younger generations and age, that kind of thing, is the fact that they have a student VP, they have an associate member, like representative member on the council. So the way that they're engaging with younger voices is in a sense slightly tokenistic because you 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 limit you limit the influence of those voices by having but even by having these seats that are designated for young people if you only have one for students for example or if you sort of have these spots that are pre-designated to be filled by young people you you build in a way of sort of managing those voices yeah. in larger discussion and you know it makes me wonder you know why you know if you want the voices of younger people if you want a more diverse representative body to make up the institution why not just reconfigure the way that elections happen or the way that you engage with your membership in a way that just organically allows younger people a seat at the table rather than do, do, doing it in a way that almost comes across to me as a little cynical yeah i think that there's 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 definitely um a sort of conversation to be had about the the the, the legitimacy of or the, the perceived legitimacy of kind of younger, less experienced voices inside of institutions like Reba. 
so like for example they they do have i think they have been trying to bring younger people into the fold a bit more so like they they've launched the future architects program who we directly ripped our name from um because we were being cheeky you know they've got things that are sort of in theory doing the right thing but sometimes it comes across and it functions a little bit more like pr than it does as genuine inclusion and representation I, I i think there is perhaps a problem with that perceived like lack of relevancy of of younger less experienced um voices that that would perhaps benefit reba to overcome in some way i think we as an organization are proof of the legitimacy of these concerns and 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 the the potential in younger people having more of a voice and having more legitimacy i think we we are like a proving concept of what can happen if you allow it to happen so yeah i i i do hope that um there there is perhaps a bit more structural change in the institution in future to to like genuinely include young people rather than just sort of doing a student survey every year and just being like oh yeah we're listening you know yeah, like bring, yeah, yeah. bring young people into like a decision making level rather than just consulting them yeah and i guess a diverse range of young people because you're right one person at the table representing any group never represents the entire group it's impossible mm. so you you need to 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 gather more one of the things i think it was in Re- maybe it was in the architects journal article when someone asked you what you were going to do next you you mentioned education so you were looking at the structures of education, the relationship between education and practice. What are, what are you looking yeah. at there? I mean, so basically, I think, so we, we, we organized another survey for that. And essentially, it was sort of in response to the fact that throughout our various places and talks and whatever, where we're talking critically about the profession, something that was very, very frequently kind of said to us was, oh, but you know, these problems, they begin in university. So why aren't you looking at that? So I suppose looking at university was to try and be like, okay, like, let's, is that true? Is, you know, is, is university the, 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 the big bad monster in this situation? And uh, my, my suspicion was that it isn't. And um, I, I think that any, any assertion that there's like a originator of these problems is kind of, you know, unfounded, because I, I think it's a, obviously an incredibly multifaceted issue. Mm. So so what we what we ended up looking at more in particular was what people's view on architectural education was, because, you know, we, I think we've identified a few glaring problems, such as there being like a bottleneck of people in architectural assistant positions because of this d- demand for like experience in these roles that kind of thing so we we were curious on if there was any consensus around how education should work and the the results of um our survey were interesting because um we would ask a question that would be something something to the effect of you know do you think the education should be more oriented towards preparing students to work in practice, for example. And we would essentially get a 30-30-30 split between yes, no, I don't know. And any kind of like question that would give a general opinion on all of architectural education, it was always third, third, third split, never any consensus. The only place there was consensus was, do you think architectural education needs to change? In which about 90% of people said yes. What that suggests to me was that any conversation about how does architecture education need to change is the wrong question and what it suggested to me was that 
there's there's not there's not something that you need to apply to all of architectural education the problem is that there's a, a lack of um choice in architectural education at, at the moment pathway to qualification and the the general like pedagogy of architectural education is fairly homogenous you know the, the 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 model that we work to now is you know so prevalent that we basically do it twice you know so many undergraduate and master's courses are almost identical practically i think that um yeah the 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 takeaway that we had from the survey that we conducted was that something that would be beneficial to look into would be creating alternative models of education and you know there are things like apprenticeships there's things like the lsa so you know i did my masters at cambridge and that's a very like research focused degree that was entirely different to my undergraduate so there's 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 places doing this but i think it needs to be a little bit more um intentional because yeah at the moment there's definitely a sort of educational uh, like dominant practice most universities subscribe to in terms of you know like a design studio uh history uh and theory uh management practice law and the sort of balance between these so I, th I think looking at like ways of creating alternative focuses or pathways to qualification through practice could be potentially a sort of valuable thing and it, it seems to be the only kind of coherent um way of interpreting the the information that we gathered at least um you know this condition of no one agreeing on how things need to change but everyone agreeing that things do need to change i think the only way that you can respond to that is to push for a system that has more choice i i would agree and i i suppose to add to that a little bit my my experience in education mm. is that people start an education in architecture and they find their own voice within that but not everybody wants to engage with architecture in their professional life in exactly the same way. Mm. But the relationship between the profession and the university is such that the accreditation process funnels students and therefore graduates into a certain kind of practice in order that they can actually earn the right mm. to use the word architect. Right, right. And therefore it means that offering diverse pathways um, I mean, I think it can still be possible within the system, mm. but I often think that architecture as a, mm. as, a dis as a subject, let's say a discipline, not, not as a profession, would benefit from different kinds of minds acti acting it against it and through it in, in a number of different ways. And right. so, yeah, we, we need architects to go into practice to design fantastic housing and schools and, you know, take care of parks and all that. But we also need other mm -hmm. kinds of architects, and I don't see why they're less, but I find the profession still considers them less even if that's an yeah. implicit judgment about yeah. that. Yeah. That, does influence, that does influence education because you mm. get a visit by a board and the board says, these are our criteria and our criteria are making or forming this kind of human. Right. So other people have to you know, slalom through that right, accreditation right. To, to get out to be who they want to be. So I think that also yeah. needs to be questioned back. It's this relationship between the profession and the university does need to be mm. discussed. Yeah. And I mean, like a good, I think a good example of that is uh, my co-founder, uh, Pretty. you know, she is doing a PhD in geography now because Excellent. she wants to influence things like housing policy. She wants to work at a level where you can actually influence the, the way that 
architecture and the built environment is produced. And yet making that choice has excluded her from being an architect because she's decided to go on and do that rather than do her part two. So she will likely never be an architect because, you know, she's made this decision, which arguably has more of an effect on the built environment and architecture in a sense than than maybe a, a traditional architect may have. Yeah, I, th- I absolutely agree. It's 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 totally linked with practice as well because it's it's linked with what 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 are we teaching an architect to be? What are, what's the bar that we're saying you have to clear to be an architect? Should there be one bar, or like should there be different bars for different kinds of architects? Yeah, I think the profession kind of shoots itself in the foot by having such a kind of two dimensional understanding of what it can be. But again, I mean, this is, you know, this is kind of relevant to why we ended up looking at rebirths, because when you when you have a conversation like this, it's like, okay, I have an idea about how things can be better. Who can do anything about this? Because it's like universities, ARB, like rebirth a bit, like it's such a cross institutional issue that from the point of view of someone trying to like campaign or like build a, a movement to um to respond to it it's 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 really difficult to like know where to look or like where to direct your energy so yeah it's 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 absolutely something that you know i believe and i think there's evidence to support about this opening up of the definition of architect and architecture education but um it's such a foundational thing in the profession that um yeah, it's almost a little sort of overwhelming in terms of like, you know, what do you do about it? The other question I have for you is, again, to do with your work and your own experience, is this question of the real world, the preparation mm-hmm. that you get in university for the real world. Um, and a couple of years ago, there was a, right. a, a discussion in your press in, in the UK, prompted by Patrick Schumacher, complaining that students, huh. you know, needed to be really only put through university in order to kind of step into an office and work, you know, but work in a particular mm-hmm. way. And there was a back and forth. Phineas Harper responded saying, you know, when there's a crisis in the profession, the universities always get pummeled. I'm just curious because you have gone through a three-year undergrad and then a two-year master's, you said, which is quite different. And maybe there are skills and things you should have been better prepared for, like business or how those kinds of things, which I totally appreciate. And I would, I would say that is a deficit. But in terms of university life, and, you know, we can't lose sight that architecture schools very often exist in universities and universities have a particular or once had a particular role to play in terms of their public function, their public goods, in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, generating knowledge, supporting people to broaden their thinking, as you said, critical thinking to develop aspects of life that aren't necessarily going to be that useful if you're reducing door schedules or, you know, chasing down fire regulations. But do you have a view on that thing about this 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 concern that keeps coming back and forth between the the lack of preparation for the real world and how we how we negotiate that? So I think at the moment you can look at like the kind of dominant educational model for architects in the UK at least as almost like a tug of war between practice and academia where you have this element of architecture university that is trying to get you to be sort of like practical and think like a designer and like you know learn how to do technical drawings and this that and the other and then there's also an element of academia where it's like okay yeah learn about history theory learn how to write about architecture learn how to think about architecture you know in a sort of more abstract conceptual way i think 
the problem with talking about like what should people come out of university being able to do is that like you know what do they want to do what are they trying to do and again i think it goes back to the the homogeneity of education the, i as 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 i see it at least most architecture education i think sort of straddles that practitioner academia line and so you get people who go into practice and they can do technical drawings but they don't know anything about like business or door schedules or whatever and you have architects who like you know try to do phd's and things and they know about writing well but you know they they have no idea of like like how to submit an ethics form or like you know the the kind of more practical elements of like academia of like writing a phd or something so you know if 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 you want i think if you want to be someone who leaves university and joins zaha hadid architects and you put out parametric stuff and that's what you do all day fine in my ideal world there'd be a place where you can go and learn that and graduate and be really good at that in my ideal world there's there'd also be another institution where you could ignore parametricism entirely and you could just learn about how to research like housing policy or um you, there's there's there'd be a space for you to look into architecture from a more theoretical political point of view for example so i think any conversation about like oh what should architecture graduates be like what skill should they have or what what should they be being taught i think it always it, the, the the huge gaping hole in that question is like that everyone is going to have a different idea of what an architect is and what an architect should do so it's it's a question that is just like inherently not going to get you anywhere because everyone's going to have a different like goal that they're work- working towards when they're trying to answer that question first answer or first part of the answer to the question prompts me to to kind of respond by saying that I think when the question is asked generally, like, you know, mm-hmm. what should the student learn and graduate in their kind of armory? What tends to not right. happen in that discussion is somebody asks the student. So you've talked about your your ideal, <laughs> yeah, right, you right, know, right, your, your ideal world of, you know, you know, as you said, pretty would, would be, you know, researching housing policy as part of architecture program and then go off to do what she needs to do, or you'd be doing another kind of mm-hmm. program and, I think what the the conversation on real world issues I'm using bunny quotes for viewers at home is that is that it yes. tends to deny the agency and the reality that right, actually right. students are living in their own real world where they have their own desires and mm-hmm. obviously and society's impacting on them and changing their attitudes to the world around them like happens in practice and in, when you're in working as well yeah. and therefore you know, it's interesting, your, your question starts to, to push it back and say, well, actually, what we need to do is provide more, more diverse realities for people to kind of find their way and then, then make sure that those people are coming out with specific things that they want to activate rather than a general principle where they have to know how to do right. everything. And yeah, and, and that did remind me of the other thing I was thinking about, which is the way that people use the real world. I think when someone like Patrick Schumacher talks about the real world, they're talking about the current highly privatized, like late capitalism economic reality that we live in. I think that's what he thinks as the real world, right? Yeah. But if we think about that as the real world, well, how long has that real world existed? And, you know, maybe this is where my lack of experience will actually limit me because I suppose in some ways for me, that is the real world because for me as someone in their mid twenties, that that is all I've known. But as I understand it, and like, please correct me if I'm wrong. If you went back to the 70s or something, as I understand it, 
there used to be a much higher representation of architects who worked for local governments and who worked in like public roles not that long ago like a few decades ago that was the real world the the entire conversation about like preparing people for the real world it's like that's that's not what you mean you mean prepare people for your current understanding of the right now economic context and a little bit of your own bias about what the world should be thrown into that it's 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 got like nothing there's there's no like historical awareness to to that kind of statement there's no historical awareness of like the real world 30 years ago was almost unrecognizable to the real world now and perhaps it's a university's job to try and think about that in the future as well because we we have some very important um hints about what the real world's going to be through like the climate crisis and um yeah. all the problems that's going to entail so you know perhaps universities shouldn't be uh just training people to contribute to the sort of built environment housing crisis economic nightmare we live in right now yeah I, that's 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 the other part of it which is that like you know i just think that there are like phrases like the real world that just get thrown around so casually and and, yeah. and and they're used as an excuse to delegitimize so many voices and and i just think it's i just think it's not um you know it's just it's just short-sighted it's a very myopic way of of engaging with people's ideas about the way that things could be sort of changed or developed or improved yeah the the, the hearing about the real world is, is a real trigger to me Thanks to Charlie for participating in the podcast and for telling us about the work that he and Pretty Mahandas have been initiating with the Future Architects Front. If you want to know more about FAF, then you can find them on Instagram. Just search for Future Architects Front and they have a growing following there and you can make contact with them through that platform. The music you hear in the podcast is written by Irish composer Sinead Finnegan and it is played by the Delmain String Quartet. If you could rate the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to it wherever you subscribe to your podcasts, that would be absolutely fantastic and appreciated. In the meantime, thank you for listening to this episode. Tune in next time and stay safe.